You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 18th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Briefing. We're coming to you live from the World Economic Forum in Davos. I'm Carlotta Rebello. Coming up on today's programme. As day three of the annual meeting gets underway, we'll get the latest from Monocle's team on the ground, both inside and outside the Congress Hall. Also ahead, we meet the editor-in-chief of Switzerland's top financial newspaper to find out more about their coverage at WEF. Then... I believe that uh, all the Europe has to understand this is a problem that uh, is between Turkey and Euro, not between the Greece and Turkey. We speak with Greece's former defense minister to hear more about dealing with difficult neighbors. And finally, the business case for inclusivity inside and outside the boardroom. All that right here on this special edition of The Briefing from Davos with me, Carlotta Rubello. So welcome to today's program. We've reached the halfway point of the week here at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Yesterday saw an array of speeches by world leaders, including the EU's Ursula von der Leyen and Finland's Sanna Marin. Today, the packed agenda continues with conversations about global resilience, India's economy and much more. Let's cross over now to the rest of the Monocle team here on the ground. And I'm joined in our Davos studio by our own Mark Zippi and on the line by Tom Webb, who's outside of the Congress Hall exploring the public party of the forum. Good afternoon to you both. Good afternoon. Hi. Marcus, I'm going to start with you. It's quite busy here at the moment as we look out from our podcast studio. The sessions have just broken up for lunch. What highlights do you have from the morning so far? Well, I think it's a, I think it's a good example of how busy and, and how many important people here are in Davos. We just had to kick out, I believe, David Miliband from this podcast studio <laughs> because there was, there was a misunderstanding with the booking. So all good were able to broadcast the briefing. And I think David Miliband and, and a journalist are sitting next door from us. But looking at highlights, obviously, it's it's incredibly busy over here, so much going on. But I have to say that in the last 24 hours, you mentioned Sanna Marin already, that was one highlight. It's incredible to see how much attention she gets. I'm, I'm quite struck by that. I, I don't think there was space in that, in that room where she was speaking, where she was being interviewed yesterday afternoon. And it's been getting a lot of press what she said over there. Nothing groundbreaking, but she just snapped at a journalist for one once again, talking about what it's like to be a young woman. Well, it, you mentioned there no space in the room. And one of the interesting features here at the forum inside the Congress Hall is that, of course, we all have to scan our pass to go inside each of the sessions. And you can see on these screens how many seats are left. And for Sanna Marin, I think an hour before the session it was already oversubscribed. In- incredible. Obviously, on a, on a darker note, I have to say that, that there are a couple of things today that are definitely going to be getting attention. And one of them is, is when the First Lady of Ukraine Olena Zelenska is speaking today. We've, we've got the news that the leadership of Ukraine's interior ministry has died in a helicopter crash. We'll be hearing from the First Lady of, Zelen- of, of Ukraine a little bit later today. And also Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is going to be addressing Davos, but that's going to be only at five o'clock local time. But uh, I think those are two events that will carry a special significance today. Uh, Tom, let's cross over to you outside on the promenade. Is it as busy outside as it is here for lunch? And uh, how are you dealing with the cold? 
I'm not going to disappoint you. I, I am genuinely outside this time. I know I chickened out and went inside uh, the other day, but it is minus three. My fingers are barely holding on to this phone. And as you say, no room in the inn. It is absolutely packed. Um, I, the, I'm at the public part of the forum. It's supposed to be open forum, but now these open buildings are now fronted by frosty door staff. You either need a meeting, an invitation, or an interview to enter. So my favorite spot, India House, my secret spot for free lunch, uh, this out-of-this-world curry that they've been serving has finally shut its door on me. Uh, it was the open secret of the forum, but no more. Um, we're actually hearing that the reason is because it is actually pre-pandemic level busy. Uh, numbers have never seen before. Businesses are so desperate to get back on track and connect. This feels like the first big opportunity for them to do so. And Tom, uh, both you and Marcus are at Davos for the first time. Uh, interesting that both of you have come for, of course, what is uh, uh, back to pre-pandemic levels, as you just mentioned. Uh, what do you think so far of the event? Of course, you're having the perspective that the general public would have. For me, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like the general public are not here because it is so exclusive. We're in this tiny village uh, in the mountains. But I, I have to be honest, the experience is pretty chaotic. There are cars slipping around in the ice. You know, they've got these electric vehicles for the first time that don't seem to be working up here with the thick snow. Uh, the pavements are packed. People are bashing each other out the way. And there's a lot of people talking about a cost of living crisis while taking selfies in Prada and, and, and drinking champagne. All the stereotypes you can imagine, they are here and alive. And uh, do I see a sense of meaningful change on the horizon? No, not really. But I do see companies out in force making some good connections, good business deals. And of course, it might just be the case of the rich getting richer out here. And Marcus, how about yourself? What is your perspective from inside the Congress Hall? I think it's interesting because it's, it's quite different from what Tom just said. I've been, I've been very impressed, actually, how well this meeting is being run. Um, for example, the main Congress Hall, where we have been spending a fair bit of time with our laptops and, and meeting interviewees and networking, there's a lot of hoovering going on, and that is something I haven't seen in many other congresses like this. They certainly keep places tidy, and I feel like the bathrooms are being cleaned all the time. I think it's functioning incredibly well, and I think people are very, very, they are enjoying this. I can see it from their faces. People are networking, mingling, and, and it's Swiss efficiency at its best, I think. Uh, Tom, I'm going to let you run back in and warm up and maybe find some lunch to rival the curry at India House. But before I do, uh, let us know a bit of what's coming up for you in this afternoon. Well, I want to sprinkle some stardust for you because, as we know, stardust has been very hard to find here, largely for obvious reasons. People don't want to be seen hobnobbing with the business elite during a cost of living crisis. But I was at an event hosted by Will I Am this morning. He is here as the founder of the Angel Foundation. This was at 8 a.m., surprisingly very quiet despite the clamor for a bit of showbiz. Only about 20 in attendance, he was discussing the digital divide that has widened since the pandemic. Uh, and he is, and his foundation were talking about Los Angeles and bringing high-speed internet there, investing in Royal Heights, which of course is where he's from. Um, I'll just say later on, I'm going to Switzerland House. I'd say this was the biggest of the houses. Uh, they are the hosts. They have moved into the hockey stadium here. Um, I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Fatih Barol. He's the executive director of the International Energy Agency. 
We've spoken at length about the impact of the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis. The purpose of this discussion is about global climate goals and the need to transform the energy system. He's touting hydrogen. I'll wait and see what he means by that. Tom Webb there. And of course, Mark Azippi here with me in the studio. Thank you both for joining us. Now, let's cross over to London where Paige Reynolds has the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Carlotta. Fifteen people, including Ukraine's interior minister and other senior officials, were killed today when a helicopter crashed in a suburb outside Kiev. The helicopter came down near a nursery in the town of Bravari, on the capital's eastern outskirts. Three children were among the dead, with 29 other people injured. Officials gave no immediate account of the cause of the crash, and there was no immediate comment from Russia. The alleged head of a criminal network involved in an EU corruption scandal has agreed to reveal which countries were involved. Pierre Antonio Pantieri, a former member of the European Parliament, is one of the four people being held on suspicion of accepting bribes from Qatar, Morocco, in return for influencing the Parliament in Brussels. And after almost four years, Marvel movies are returning to the Chinese box office. Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which arrives on the 7th of February, will be the first Marvel film to play since 2019. The apparent ban began at a time when tensions between the US and China reached a high amid a trade war. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you in Davos, Carlotta. Thanks, Paige. Now, the World Economic Forum's annual gathering here in Davos is obviously a huge media event. Hundreds of accredited journalists are here keeping an eager eye for any major developments or comments made in the Congress Hall. One of these journalists is Marcus Diem Meyer, the editor-in-chief of Ant Handel Zeitung, Switzerland's leading business newspaper. Marcus, hello, good afternoon. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, can you first try to paint a picture of the scale of the workload you have here at Davos this week? Yeah, it's uh, in fact, uh, you, you can't uh, sleep much. You are uh, on your feet all day. Uh, you go to, uh, you meet people, you go to uh, events, you, and you have to write in the end. You have to write about what's happening. And it's not so easy to take it all uh, uh, in the time, but it's, it's wonderful to be here. Well, we're already on day three. How are you coping so far? Have you been sleeping? <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit tired, let's say this way. <laughs> Uh, now, this is, uh, I believe, your eighth time attending the World Economic Forum. How does this edition compare to previous ones? I think um, uh, you had, I mean, you, when, when I look at the whole time back, then it's, it was like uh, a deterioration of the goal of, uh, of the WEF. Uh, because the WEF has the, the, the goal, in fact, to, to, be, to better the world. And when you look at the world now, it doesn't look very uh, perfect. And uh, you have also, the WEF was also always standing for the Davos man. Maybe you know the, the expression, like uh, the globalized uh, elite. And uh, there is the, the, that is going back. You don't have a, a global, uh, globalization like we had it maybe 10 years ago, and it's going back uh, all the time. And I think this, is, this, is, uh, this would be like a problem. You have to, at the same time many, many big uh, uh, international problems which would need uh, uh, solved, but not so easy. But when I look how do people react on it, I think they are much more um, pragmatic. People don't really think there will be the solution of the world problems, but they want to talk to each other, they want to talk about the problems, they want to see if their view of the world is shared by others, they, want, they need an understanding of what's going on, and they just need to, to know how others uh, deal with problems they, they have themselves. It's not just the business deals. This is also a part of, of the game here. Do you feel like uh, it does help to, I guess, inform the view of how 
the other half of the world li lives and in terms of your coverage does it help inform the way you relate to the stories happening here and the main headlines coming out of WEF to your readers? I think, uh, yeah, when you, when you are here, it's like, I think uh, at the beginning it was very astonishing for me and maybe for many people who are here for the first time. It's like in a bubble. You, you are in between all these very rich people uh, and very influential people. They walk by and you get, in the beginning you can get the feeling you are part of that. You are now very close to the powerful people of the world. But even if they stand a, a meter from you, you are very far away from them. And it's very important to know that all the time and always to know what your mission is here. You are, you are, uh, I'm not here as me because nobody's interested in me, but I am here as a, uh, my job is to, to do for the public, for the, for the broader public and to get them what, what's happening here and also to be critical about what's happening here. And, uh, yeah. Looking at your uh, print publication, but also the online uh, reporting, uh, how much coverage are you giving this week to uh, the World Economic Forum? Is it the dominating event, of course, because it's happening here in Switzerland? Uh, tell us a bit more about the significance it has for your audience. Yeah, sure. I think in this week is the dominant uh, event. Uh, as you said, it's in Switzerland. And for Switzerland, it's, it's a big thing. You have the whole elite of the world here the, that is special for this small country who is not very influential on the world normally. So yes, it is a very big event. And it's a big event because you, you have the opportunity to be close here and to, to, to write about the big subjects. And in the end, there is not so much going on uh, uh, besides that, except uh, the big, big themes uh, the, the, that you have anyway, uh, not only this week. Well, thinking, uh, speaking about big themes, what are some of the things that have been said that have most caught your attention so far? What has been for you the big headline or the biggest news? Okay, I think in the beginning, I think it changed a little bit. In the beginning, you had these uh, this reviews and these uh, this, uh, speeches about all these big, big problems of the world. First of all, the war in Europe, uh, inflation, uh, uh, the going down of the, the international cooperation, all this thing, very, very gloomy outlook. And I think when I look at the discussions I, I follow since, since maybe since yesterday, I think there is much, uh, the, what is coming back is the environmental, the e, uh, e, ESG goals. They are very much discussed uh, in many, many uh, contexts, in the technological context, in the food context, uh, even in the, in the geopolitical context. And I think th this makes sense because people start to talk about uh, very concrete uh, 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 problems they, they need to solve. It's not do we need ESG? That's no more the question. That was the question maybe two, three year, uh, years ago, this big uh, like ideological commitment to. Now it's very uh, concrete. What is greenwashing? How can we uh, prevent that? How c can we convince consumers? How can we do products better? It's very, very concrete. It's not the sol uh, solving of the big world questions, uh, what WEF would like to do, but People know that's not that's not on the table now. Of course, um, economic forecasts haven't been great uh, since the year started. Uh, do you believe that from that economic point of view, it's all gloom and doom? I think the situation is, is difficult, yes. But when you look at the n latest numbers, 
they are at least better than you than it was to fear maybe in autumn in last year. You had the ener energy situation is much better. You have had to see it here now. It's cold in Davos, but the last days were relatively warm for here. And also in Switzerland, in Europe, it was warm. It's in fact, maybe a, a, a result of the of the climate change. But uh, when you look at the energy situation, it was helping. Even the the recession fears are a little bit uh, lower. But that doesn't mean it's it will be a, a perfect year. It will be difficult. Now, tell us a bit more about the rest of the week and maybe the rest of today. How does it look like for you? A lot of meetings. What are you going to be doing over the next uh, few days? I think I want to uh, in, uh, intensify my talks with people. Uh, and I really want also to look at, uh, at the sessions. I had not so much time because sometimes they are really interesting. And uh, yeah, I have uh, uh, want to read a lot uh, also what others are reading and talk with people, yes. And just before I let you go, we were talking earlier how you've been here eight times already. Maybe you have some advice for newcomers. Does routine help at all? Do you know how to get your way around by now? What advice would you have for newcomers to Davos? Okay, I think at the beginning everything is too much. Uh, you, you just have to know where have, do you have to go, where is the way to go, where do you register, all these this, uh, like, uh, uh, daily simple things, they can be really difficult and they take a lot of time. But uh, then I think what I would recommend to journalists, uh, don't prepare too much. In the beginning people want to, to write to hundreds of CEOs, make appointments with them, that makes not much sense. because. First, you don't have much response. Second, the response you have can be changed when you are here. And third, and most important, you just meet the people here. And it's many things uh, uh, start uh, spontaneous. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't do too much preparation. It's good to know what is the big discussions of the world. That's, that's the best preparations, but not interviews or something like that. There you go. By a bit of spontaneity always helps. Marcus Yemeyer, thank you very much for joining us. Marcus is, of course, the editor-in-chief of Handelszeitung. Thank you. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. You're back with a special edition of The Briefing on Monocle 24, coming to you from the World Economic Forum in Davos. Geopolitical confrontation has been high on the agenda this year and also in the forums and roundtables taking place in the Greek house on the promenade. And Greece, a member of NATO, hasn't been shy about the tensions with its neighbour Turkey. With this in mind, Monocle's Tom Webb caught up with Evangelos Apostolakis, a former admiral and former defence minister for Greece, about his optimism for peace in Ukraine. I'm worried because uh, there is not any any serious effort in the way of uh, stop the war and find a solution the way we are trying to, to, to save this country finally because uh, at the end of the day this country is destroyed. It. A lot of people are die from both sides and uh, some people are earning money or some countries. So I'm not so optimist that this war is going to finish uh, soon and uh, I'm wary about the results that are existing and created because of the continuity of this war. I hope that um, the, the countries that can give a solution uh, as the United States and the Europe itself uh, will, uh, will change the, the way that uh, acting in this area and uh, trying uh, simultaneously by supporting the Ukraine and defending this situation on uh, finding a solution and finish this war. 
Can Europe ever cooperate again with Russia in a meaningful way in the near future? This is a very, very, is, is a question that nobody can answer at the moment, but uh, I believe that uh, nothing is impossible. And probably in some years or in, uh, in a time in the future, some problems between uh, Europe and Russia could be solved, so the, the, the cooperation is going to be better again. But uh, one thing is very important to dumping happen again. So the, the dependencies of, uh, of the Europe with the energy from Russia. Also the dependencies from no one other country except the Europe itself. So I believe, uh, because I'm an optimist person, and I believe that in the future this relations is going to be created again and be more productive. So closer to home, with Greece and Turkey, there's a lot of rhetoric. There's a bit of escalation of tension, particularly with comments from Erdogan. How can Greece work with Turkey to avoid an escalation? Greece is a country that uh, is looking and is seeking for, for, for peace. Greece uh, don't like to have a war with no one. So he's trying to find solutions uh, in the way of the international law, in accordance with the international law and the conventions that are existing and that the country has uh, oriented. Plus, uh, the, the problems with the sea zones has to be solved. Uh, he's trying to, to, to solve them in accordance with the UNCLOS convention. That uh, is the way that the country has to, to separate and uh, delimit the uh, exclusive economical zones. At the moment, uh, in the area, Turkey uh, has, uh, has uh, some actions uh, in uh, declaring uh, things, also some actions in, um, in the sea and in the air, that uh, shows that uh, is threatening the Greece with war. So uh, you see the last, uh, the last uh, incident is that uh, Greece uh, declared that uh, he has decided to create the territorial waters in 12 nautical miles. And uh, this for Turkey is something, is a reason for, for war. So they, they have extended Kajuk's belly. And um, uh, that makes Greece a country that, is, uh, that has uh, limited uh, curiosity on, on the country itself. So there is a, a, a huge tension in the area, and um, some of the people in Greece are worried about uh, the war beginning. Some others are more cool and understand what is the situation. I believe that uh, all the Europe has to understand that this is a problem that uh, is between Turkey and Euro, not between the Greece and Turkey. So we have to solve some problems. Plus, uh, the Turkey has to understand that she cannot threaten always a country who is belonging to the Europe and to the NATO that is belonging also him with uh, actions and declarations that are not existing through the conventions and international law. So the, the Europe and, our, and the allies of Greece has to show them that if, if they don't follow the rules, something has to be done. Greece's former defense minister, Evangelos Apostolakis, there speaking to Monocle's Tom Webb. This is The Briefing, live from Davos. We'll be back shortly.
Next on The Briefing, we talk about inclusion. When you think about business and big corporations, inclusion might not be the first thing on your mind. But as my next guest knows, by excluding disabled people, businesses miss out on an array of talent and fresh ideas. That's precisely why Caroline Casey is here at WEF in Davos. She's a disability activist and the founder of The Valuable 500. And she's here to advocate for change around disability inclusion in business. Caroline, welcome to The Briefing. Thank you so much. You didn't say I was a troublemaker, which is absolutely my primary label of all time. I feel like you're going to let us know over the next five or six minutes. Well, let's start exactly by asking you about why the World Economic Forum? Why is this the platform to get this very important message across? Well, four years ago in 2019, we launched the Valuable 500 believing that to end the disability exclusion crisis globally, we needed business leadership. And that, that is essential. Let's be honest, Davos is where the leadership from policy and business and the not-for-profit sector are. So we're coming here because we can get them all. Now, just for context for our listeners, can you tell us a bit more about the Valuable 500 and how the network uh, actually operates? Well, believe it or not, we built the impossible. In two years and two months, the Valuable 500 was complete. It is now the world's global partnership of 500 businesses and their CEOs working collectively together to end disability exclusion. And it has disability accountability, which is, I mean, the leadership of of the companies, the CEOs, they're the accountable ones. So we broke the CEO silence and for the organization to become part of the Valuable 500, the CEO had to have leadership action at the highest level of the business. That's great. We built it. It's a world first. Exciting. But now, now we've got to mobilize this unique collective, which is 22 million employees in 41 countries headquartered, 64 sectors with 23 market cap, let alone the power of the supply chain. What would it be like if we were to mobilize them to really drive system change? in the business community. So what we're getting them to do is to work on three barriers. One is getting disabled talent in the C-suite of tomorrow. The second is to increase disability representation in the external communications of the company and really good disability representation. And lastly, and why we're here today, is to get our 500 companies to tackle the shocking absence of disability data and performance in their organizations. So that's our job. It's getting a collective synchronized action, leave no one behind and really try to put a dent in the business system. I'm curious to hear about, you know, how do you make this, you know, business case for inclusivity? What are you telling CEOs when you meet them, when you were trying to get them to join Valuable 500? <laughs> how do you make the case for well, it? Well, it was a lot of hustling. And I can tell you we had, we approached 3,000 companies to get 500. And this is 500, this is some of the biggest and the best in the world with over 1,000 employees. Thankfully, we no longer have to talk the case, but let me just tell you, it was a case around the 13 trillion spending power that the 1.3 billion people with two people that love them, which is 54% of our global economy. And um, we talked about insight and innovation that the disability experience brings to certain products and services. And we're talking about Gen Z. I mean, these are the, the, the leaders of the future, the customers of the future, the employees of the future. But we don't talk about that anymore. Now it's about risk. It's about risk to your brand. It's about the risk of Gen Z and it's about being held to account. And so we don't have to do that anymore. Thank God. It's it's great to hear that, you know, the case doesn't need to be fought that hard anymore. But, you know, the numbers are there to see in what businesses have to gain by being inclusive. Why do you think progress is still lacking, though? 
Listen, when I say we don't have to make the business case, we do. We, we have to keep making the case for it, but I just refuse to do it because I think it's about risk now. Um, but why isn't it being, why aren't we seeing more work in the area? Have you seen what these CEOs and businesses have? They talk about overwhelm, so many different priorities. So how does disability kind of come to the top when people still don't understand the value that this community bring and it's part of a huge portion of our population? So when you have organizations like L'Oreal and Google bringing out inclusive tech, you know, with Lancome about how we put on mascara with shaking hands or when you have Jaguar Land Rover, Aston Martin or you who have Gucci with Ellie Goldstein as their model, that's the changer. And that's what brings the visibility. And we have all sectors and all countries and all industries in the Valuable 500. So I'm hoping the power of the collective is what will make the difference. Caroline, just finally, what would make this a successful WEF for you? What are you hoping to bring home with you? What are you hoping to harness over the remaining two and a half days? Well, a lot can be done in the corridors in two and a half days, but what's going to make me very happy at 6.45 here, we will be launching the white paper on inclusive reporting that will tackle the shocking lack of data. We were going to be challenging our 500 companies by the end of 2025 to have disability performance in their annual reports and we have standardized five key metrics that they decided on self-id employee resource groups accessibility goals with budgets and training now if we can do that then we can make change because with data then we can change without data we can manage nothing and therefore we go home hopefully with the amplification of that message that nobody can turn around and say i didn't know Caroline, thank you very much. That was Caroline Casey, who's disability activist and the founder of The Valuable 500, and of course, a self-described terrible maker too. And that's all for this special edition of The Briefing at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting here in Davos. It was produced by Marcus Zippi here in Davos, and our studio manager back in London was Nora Hall. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time, and stay tuned throughout the week for more shows, reporting, and interviews from this year's WEF. I'm Carlotta Rebello. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.